You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Eater's Digest. I'm Amanda Clute, Editor-in-Chief of Eater. My name is Daniel Janine. I am a big-time producer at Eater. Uh, Amanda, welcome to the program. Thanks Why are you for laughing? having me. <laughs> no, I'm not. You laughed. You're at at, when I said big-time was, producer. You seemed that to- was an accurate introduction to yourself. <laughs> so, uh, Daniel, what do we have this week on the show? Oh, I think first you should introduce Simone as a, as a guest on the show this week. Yes. So, this week on the show, you will hear some background noise from my daughter, who is in the room with me today because you know what Daniel we're still working from home and what she keeps saying is I can't wait for a vegan EMP exactly she cannot wait uh Dan- um, but Daniel what's up on the show today well this week we have uh George Chen who is the head honcho of China Live a me- mega structure Chinese restaurant in in San Francisco uh with like how many 14 different concepts inside what what there's a lot there's a (laughs) lot going on in there there's a cocktail bar there's a fine dining restaurant there's on the ground floor it's a collection of more casual restaurants and there's a store um it's a wonderful place i love it so much and i wanted to bring him on because i wanted to know what how that has been going over this pandemic year and how he's approaching reopening because it's not like you just flip a switch and then a massive place like that can just automatically reopen. So we're going to talk to him about what this year's been like, what it's like hiring up right now, his prospects for the future. And then we're going to talk about some stories. Uh, yeah, there's, you know, we've, we haven't done stories for a while. So there's a lot of silly kind of online stuff we can talk about. Some uh, some some important shifts, seismic shifts in the vegan food world mm-hmm. and uh, and more. But uh, until then, let's talk to George Chen of China Live. We have George Chen. He is the founder, CEO, and uh, executive chef of China Live. He's been in the industry for over 40 years. George, welcome to the show. Hi, Amanda. How are you? Nice to be here I'm with you guys. Doing today. well. I'm also the uh, head so- busboy, uh, Bianca. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so tell us tell us about China Live for people who aren't, aren't super familiar. Well, China Live was uh, my 16th restaurant. My first restaurant was Beetle Nut, and I've had restaurants in Shanghai as well, China. I spent about 10, 15 years there. China Live is a big, ambitious project. It's about 30,000 square feet on four floors. I'll probably never do that again, but um, uh, yeah, I bit off a little bit more than I can chew. But we are, uh, uh, you know, we have kind of uh, established ourselves here. People look at China Live as sort of the modern Chinese food emporium, uh, food hall, marketplace. Uh, we have retail. Uh, we have uh, different venues for events. We have a, a, a curated cocktail uh, lounge uh, called Co Drinks Bar. Uh, eight tables by George Chan is the fine dining component. Literally has only eight tables, and uh, so. 
on multiple floors, we have this uh, monster of a place. Uh, some people say, oh, it's kind of like the Chinese Italy or Chile, but, uh, you know, I know those folks pretty well, but uh, people seem to enjoy it. We're right in the heart of Chinatown uh, on Broadway, and uh, we helped um, uh, revitalize some of the energy in Chinatown. Uh, you know, uh, it's the oldest Chinatown in the country and uh, I really wanted to do it uh, uh, there, even though it wasn't a great, you know, walk by traffic location, but we, we've done okay. Well, before the COVID, we were the 63rd highest grossing restaurant in the US. Wow. Uh, and yeah. and I know, you know, you've been through a lot during COVID, but I, w- I wanna ask you about reopening because that's really the phase we're in right now. And what is it like to reopen such a massive space like that with so many different moving parts? It's really tough. Um, the The reason that I never shut down, even after March 16th last year, uh, is because I know that, uh, of course, we have a huge investment, uh, but we immediately moved to heavy takeout and had a volunteer group. We didn't know what was going on. It was like, you know, I told you it was like a bomb went off and nobody's felt the effects yet. And so we kept uh, to go and then we did, you know, outdoor dining when that was allowed and just followed all along. If we had shut down completely, it's really hard to reopen because, you know, all your electricity and plumbing, your, uh, you know, your stoves, your your refrigeration, uh, and you lose your core employees, most importantly. So I uh, had over 200 employees when we uh, went to shelter in place. And now I have only about 65, and I don't think I ever get back to that number. Uh, just trying to do things a lot more efficiently. And of course, the business level is not what it was. Uh, it's also differentiated now because so much, uh, you know, delivery uh, and you know, meal kits and things like that. Opening this time, uh, hopefully, is for good. You know, I hope we don't get another spike or a variant. But opening a big place like this takes. Uh, a lot of planning in phases because you have multiple venues with different uh, people with different skill sets. And then uh, when you, when eight tables didn't really do any takeout until the last time out in December, when we were allowed to open for like three weeks. Uh, But so that crew, I only kept them uh, shut the cuisine and then we had to try and bring everybody else back. And a lot of people are just not around. So Number one uh, the, is getting to keep people back. Number two is just the physical space of planning that, you know, because you move so much furniture around to make, you know, distancing and all this uh, for whatever potential percentage you're allowed to open. And then uh, you, you, you can reconfigure a restaurant, you know, you have plastic barriers or whatever. We didn't have too many of those because we have a huge space, but it's a tremendous amount of work and, you know, we kind of felt like we got jerked around a lot. Obviously nobody knew how this COVID thing was going to evolve. And so uh, hopefully uh, this is the last time we have to, uh, to do this and hopefully we can slowly open more and more. Uh, supposedly June 15th, we're allowed to open hundred percent. Let's, you know, keep our fingers crossed. What's it like on the fine dining side versus the, the rest of your venue? Um, so fine dining is different in that, uh, first of all, you don't know if people are willing to spend that much. So when I reopen the eight tables, I lower the price to 175 a person for 10 courses and, and everybody else raised their prices 
And because people are saying, well, you know, the cost of restaurants is just so much more expensive. Uh, but we realized that uh, there is actually good demand for high end, uh, at least at eight tables. And so we're lucky that we've been booking up pretty well. So we brought it back to the old price of 225. Uh, but, you know, it's a, it's a different feel. Uh, it's like running multiple restaurants that are very different. You know, they, uh, um, the team at eight tables, don't really cross train much downstairs. They'll help out once in a while if we get in a jam, but uh, they're dedicated to uh, a different style of cuisine. And downstairs where you're dependent on a lot of people being in one space at a time, do you see that business coming back or you think it's just going to be slow and, and you'll get there by the time you're allowed to open 100% capacity? Well, I don't think we're going to... Uh, obviously, Europe is still code red and so the european or the uh, other country travelers we got a lot of asian travelers mm -hmm. and you don't see a lot of those people i think domestic travel is picking up because everybody has got this pent-up energy to travel and to go out and see things and so we're seeing uh you know domestic tra uh, visitors but channel live uh is not really a neighborhood restaurant we did some uh big data stuff and found out that 85% of our business came outside 9.7 miles. So, you know, mm -hmm. you can imagine during COVID with deliveries, that's your perimeter, if you will, your, your, your area of service for all the delivery apps. So you, when you lose 85% of your business and, uh, and, uh, uh, that's not in your neighborhood, let's say, uh, then, you know, you have, you have to find other ways to do this business. Uh, and I don't, I don't think delivery or all these, you know, we did ghost kitchen, you know, we had to, you know, to, uh, to enlarge your geographical footprint. So I think it's going to be slow coming back um, uh, I, uh, until business traveling. I mean, it's not just the tourists, it's the co business conferences and also tech. Companies. Mm. We have a lot of tech companies here in San Fran, right? So, you know, when people are allowed to work two, three days from home, uh, remotely, uh, I mean, if you're downtown restaurant by say Salesforce mm -hmm. tower, I mean, I would be really scared because it's a ghost town down there. And same thing up in Seattle and South Lake union. And yeah, I don't know about New York, but I mean, certain parts of the country are back like Texas, Miami. I mean, they're almost like a different country. Uh, wonderful. <laughs> no, wonderful. That, you know, look, it's America, you know, Liberty for all. So, um, yeah. And so right now for us here in San Francisco, uh, it'll come back, uh, uh, bit by bit. We're seeing improvement even in the last month. Uh, we're probably up 20%, uh, on sales, uh, month over month. And we're seeing, uh, better check averages and, uh, higher foot traffic. Uh, and, uh, you know, but, uh, it's not going to be what it was. I mean, we used to do over a thousand covers a day. When you say you did ghost kitchens, what does that mean? You would, did you just come up with whole new restaurant concepts hmm. out of your kitchen? No. So we have, you know, some brand identity and, uh, even though we've only been around since 17 and people, there's certain signature dishes that, people really come for, like my SJB, you know, the St. Jim Bao, the pan fried dumplings. Mm -hmm. And so I looked at uh, a lot of ghost kitchen opportunities and I really didn't believe in them because first of all, the quality generally doesn't travel. And two, the cost of like setting up a ghost kitchen is like setting up a, a separate small restaurant without indoor dining. 
you know, and then you have to advertise and get the word out. Uh, so uh, with Argos Kitchen, which is done with VKC, a virtual kitchen corp, uh, they're funded by ex-Uber execs, not the founders, but they used to be uh, guys that know that business well. Uh, and they got well-funded by VCs as well. And uh, they came to us and they had a couple of chef guys uh, from French Laundry and from Chez Panisse that we worked with on saying, how do we take my best dishes that can travel and then have you guys, like, I call it like parvig bread, you know, but how do you, it's a lot more complicated than that, but uh, how do you guys then deliver it? You know, we you pick up the food from us say 80% to what I wanted to be. And how do you finish it in your kitchen? You don't have walks. People can't be trained on walks and things like that. So walk dishes are generally, you know, the dishes that have walk hay and, and why you go to a Chinese restaurant aren't going to travel. They're just, you know, it's like, if you think it's like taking Chinese food, taking it out of your fridge and reheating in the right. microwave, that's not going to work for me. So that was tough. So we actually went through four months of testing and now we have 10 locations and just wow. in the process, yeah, from San Jose to Berkeley, and we do about three thousand bucks a day in, in with our ghost kitchen business. You know, they don't like to be called ghost kitchen; they like to be called virtual kitchen. But I think they're going to lose that battle. Uh, but, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I used the word virtual kitchen the other day, and someone was like, "What's that?" Yeah. And I'm like, "It's a ghost kitchen." They're like, "Oh, I get yeah, it." Yeah, exactly. That is so cool. And like when I think that the way I mean the way I think about these things is different within what people would consider striking distance of your restaurant, right? Like you can set up virtual or ghost kitchens 20, 30 miles away and people will feel like they're ordering from the restaurant. But when you're opening in San Jose and you're opening in different cities, was that, has that been a separate marketing campaign or are you letting, uh, are you letting like the delivery apps kind of do the work for you? Uh, the delivery apps will, uh, will sponsor some, uh, uh, some exposure like five dollars off, or no delivery fee, uh, because they they know that by dealing with us in San Francisco in Chinatown, that we mm-hmm. do like we we'll, we do ten thousand dollars a day and to go you you know on a regular day, uh, and and you know DoorDash is the biggest one and you know they'll do five thousand six thousand dollars a day just with us, so right. they know that we have the numbers. And so they understand that, hey, you know, uh, if you have a good product, you need to get it out there. You know, we're an independent restaurant and only one one really large location. So we don't have like crazy marketing dollars. You know, we'll, we'll buy $100 and, you know, on Instagram or Facebook ad, and that'll drive some support. We do a pop-up in Marin. And we do between five and ten grand uh, uh, on the third Thursday of every month. Um, we we don't use a delivery apps for that. We just send an email out. People order on our website, mm-hmm. and then we drop the food off at a friend's uh, nursery in Marin, and people come pick it up. So wow. yeah, so that's not a ghost kitchen deal, but we but but the ghost kitchen isn't in Marin. Right, they don't service Marin, uh, nice. and so like they don't service Walnut Creek and in that corridor, and right, that's right. a big market. So, we're 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 trying to do everything we can to bring quality food to a bigger area because, you know, people are starting to travel more. I see the traffic is getting much worse than you know. I mean, uh, in certain parts of the city, but I I still think it's not going to be the same behavior. You know, there's still a lot of people here in, in California, in San Francisco, that don't feel comfortable dining 
out or, or certainly indoors yet. And especially because you have such a huge space, uh, were you frustrated with, I guess, the 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 way the the general perception of what it meant to like push for indoors throughout the pandemic? Oh yeah, it was. Um, you know, I thought that they they just lumped us all in the same pot. And there are better operators and there are not so good operators, right? And some bars will secretly, you know, uh, allow people not wearing masks and they're like, you know, the old days. Which right? ones? Just kidding. <laughs> oh, <I'm sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's some in the marina, some in the mission. Uh, but, you know, and, 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 you know, that's not safe. You know, people are going to get sick and you're going to get with other people. And then there are people more like us where we had, you know, temperature robots, contact tracing for our employees, mandatory checks of COVID tests every two weeks for our employees. Uh, thank God we had the PPP. And because we, we do large volume, we got a in high payroll. We got a large PPP. But all that money went towards like this indoor uh, getting ready and really, really bugged me or pissed me off actually it was last December when they early December mm -hmm. they shut everything down including outdoor dining that was brutal I mean that like almost took the air out of all of us uh, and thank God now we're you know 50% and hopefully uh, opening up a bit more but yeah it's 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 not right to do that I understand safety is the ultimate concern not just for guests but for our employees and we don't uh, we don't you know, tell people, hey, look, if you don't want to work for your own personal reasons, safety, we don't like right. make them feel bad. I mean, everybody has their own right to to what they believe, right? So, uh, but we have to stay open. Uh, I mentioned Amanda in an email before because you know, shutting down completely and then not uh, and then try to reopen a place this size is I would say nearly impossible. But are you must be happy that you didn't panic in the beginning. Um, I mean, because I think for a lot of us, like we heard some podcast and we were like, the world is ending. I think if I had a restaurant in March 15th or whatever, I'm like, I would have, I probably would have closed it. And yeah, I, 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 you know, I've had, I've been in this business a very long time and uh, I've had, you know, restaurants that I had to close for various reasons. You know, I had a steakhouse in Shanghai when the trade wars happened. American steaks and American wine went up to 100% plus yeah. tariff. I mean, how do you do business there, right? But, uh, you know, so some place, sometimes you have to shut the doors. Uh, and, and, you know, um, my first restaurant, Bidonut, was there for, you know, 21, 22 years. Mm -hmm. And so uh, and it's, it shuttered finally as well. You know, restaurants tend to have a lifespan. You know, the institutions that last 50 plus years are very rare. Mm -hmm. We, with our investment, what, what we're trying to do, we, we couldn't, I just couldn't imagine at the, towards the latter part of my restaurant career to, 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 to just give up. I, you know, I, I, I have always saying that you know, Abe Lincoln said, you know, like you can't fail unless you quit. So we weren't going to quit. So if we don't quit, maybe we don't fail. And so there was no choice in the matter. We, we, I, did I panic? I was freaked out. I even said to Eater when they interviewed me that next day, I said, it's like Armageddon. And I actually thought I'd not experienced anything like this. We've been through SARS and bird flu and 9-11 and the dot-com bust. And 
God knows what else, the Great Recession. I mean, the restaurant business gets hit a lot, but this one directly more affected our industry, mm. right? It's like mm-hmm. yeah. uh, other people can still work remotely and get paid. Well, if you can't open restaurants, nobody gets paid. And, and then what do you do? You got so many variables, you know? So it was like, first thing I did was I call all our key vendors and tell them, look, here's what I owe you. Here's what I can pay you now. Will you work with me? And they really all appreciated that. You know, we didn't like just go dark and say, you know, sorry, come and try and collect. Because we always intended to keep those relationships going and, and keep our employees also well-informed. I kept most of them with their health insurance for as long as I could and all that other stuff. And then people just, you know, in the industry after, I thought it would be over by summer. And I thought it was Armageddon. And now we're like approaching summer 2021, you know, <laughs> which is like unbelievable uh, to me. I if, you, if I had known last year, March 16th, that it was going to last over a year, I'm, I may have like said, okay, we got to rethink this and can we survive a year? You know, the government's certainly been helpful with, with the, you know, with the restaurant relief fund. Uh, I think that's what they're calling it. And, uh, and some other, will you be uh, applying for that? Oh, heck yeah. Uh, I'm, uh, my wife and I are the primary owner, so she's a female minority. And uh, there's some uh, terms in there that says if you were like uh, disadvantaged because of you know AAPI hate or whatever, we're gonna you get to, first dibs. Yeah, we're gonna try to get first dibs. You know, at pie. Nice. I mean, the pie's not big enough. Let's put it simply; it's just not big enough. So everybody's gonna be competing for it on Monday. You know, the, a lot of restaurants mm-hmm. are gonna gonna be trying to jump the gun and get in there. We're doing that right now. Yeah. Since yeah. you're such a big business, will the maximum cover your losses? Oh, I don't even want to tell you what my losses were last year. I mean, <laughs> it's, uh, it's horrific, but, uh, you know, uh, it's at least we, uh, have enough reserves from the second PPP to, to, mm-hmm. certain, to keep pushing, you know, obviously we're still losing money, but, um, uh, you know, a big place like this just has certain overhead. Our PG&E bill, our energy bill is over 20 grand a month. You know, uh, our trash is over 10. I mean, it's crazy. So, uh, <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what do you do? Insurance is crazy. You cannot not insure your place, especially in COVID times. Mm-hmm. And so right. uh, these fixed costs are, uh, and not to even mention trying to renegotiate our lease, uh, it's just, you know, there are still variables and it's still scary. I mean, I'm confident that we'll make it, but there are no guarantees. Are there other pivots in addition to the ghost kitchens that you guys have done that you think will stick around that were successful? Uh, you know, I don't know if meal kits will survive. I mean, I've mm. done, no. I've studied tons of meal kits and some of them require so much work, you know, like from fine dining restaurants. I mean, you... Put this in your uh, convection oven, or what if you don't have a convection oven? You know, mm-hmm. uh, some like from Go Belly uh, is like it's pretty expensive. It's like twice what you would pay. Uh, mm-hmm. So, wait but, quickly for those for those who don't know, Go Belly is uh, essentially lets you um, order famous dishes from restaurants all over the country, right. and they're packaged up. And, and, ready to and if home. you're stuck at home and you're bored and you haven't been out and you want to. Ch- you want to say, hey, well, maybe I want to go to that Jewish deli in New York, you know, like, uh, well, hell, yeah. 
We just we just call them delis now. Yes, right. <laughs> delis and, and you know I love Second Avenue Deli in New York when they were on First and Tenth. Anyways, um, yeah. No, second attempt. Sorry, obviously, but um, mm-hmm. yeah. Hello, uh, but you know, I think I think you try it once, and so you just paid, you know, twenty bucks, uh, thirty bucks for a sandwich or whatever. Uh, it, it like, right. I don't know if that model will sustain once people can travel. Uh, I, I think fine dining restaurants are. We stopped doing to go at eight tables because it's just. You, you mm-hmm. can't do both well. And uh, I think either had right. an article about that, in, about New York, uh, Momofuku Co. or something mm-hmm. stopped and other people stopped. I think uh, we, we stopped them. But downtown, downstairs China Live is, you know, Chinese food is one of the largest delivery components like pizza. And so that'll that'll hopefully keep up. And uh, uh, my, my decision is to shall I reduce the menu? Because before COVID, I had a very limited menu for it to go because I didn't think certain dishes traveled. And then during COVID, like, okay, well, we give up on some quality because we all did, right? And so I expanded that menu to include a lot of stuff that wouldn't have delivered. So now I got to go back and see, here's a load, right? A lot of restaurants are getting into this problem of, look, I'm doing this much uh, to go. And then now I've got indoor dining coming back and now outdoor parklets are meant to be staying. And so where do you put all that stuff? I mean, you, your, your production is kind of crazy, right? So uh, uh, you, you can't have boxes stacked up where diners are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. I think some of those issues will, will resolve itself. We're working on it every day. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll see, but it's, uh, we're not out of the woods. Right before COVID hit, you had announced you were expanding to Seattle. Uh, I think it was supposed to be this year. Is that still on? Is it it's happening next year now? So Seattle is going through some of the same, cause they're tech center. You know, we're going to go into an Amazon corner, like 50 yards from the spheres in the AWS building. And and we just had a conversation. You're the first to know. We're not going to do Seattle. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think it's not the right concept in the right location because Amazon won't, you know, like any big secret company, they're not going to tell you whether their employees are going to be able to work remotely or not. But it's, mm-hmm. I have friends up there, and they say it's really dead. Right? So um, potentially um, Amazon may have, uh, it was a mutual decision uh, to end the lease. We had signed the lease a year and a half ago. And we were actually, you know, if push came to shove, we would have done it. But they felt as well that um, uh, it was best uh, to just uh, terminate the lease. So we've done that. And we appreciate all their support. And, you know, they're, uh, you know a lot of people don't like Amazon. I'm an Amazon fan. I order stuff from them all the time. Uh, you know, it's convenience, right? But uh, we are going to have a, uh, we're looking at Chicago and New York right now. So that's, wow. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to head out there on the 23rd and we have some meetings that week. And there's, I can't tell you what space, but uh, uh, it, it, it's very exciting. I think the location's right. The opportunity is right. There's a lot of repurposed spaces now, uh, even food halls that are, um, that, that will suit us well, you know, because it reduces your capital costs. And New York is the big apple. 
and we want to be in the Big Apple, but it's a it's a big flag to plant, and you got to see yeah. it in New York, or you're not going to make it, right? And in Chicago, have you yeah. have you noticed rents um, becoming more affordable as you're you know looking at spaces fresh now? Uh, I think so. Uh, I think commercial real estate is down substantially. You know, a lot of restaurants close. I mean, there are thousands that close in New York. Um, and uh, uh, and so nobody knows what we're going to, you know, it's not like business as usual back to 2019. So you're going to, your numbers are going to have to be ratcheted down. And if you do that, you're going to have to look at your lease numbers, right, as well, and your rent factor. So, yeah, I see it coming down. I see people still wanting experiential, which was a big word before, you know, COVID. Uh, uh, we're still going to do part of that, but in, in a more safer distance way, using a lot more technology, a lot more, you know, safety uh, concerns and things like that to enhance that experience. And I think you have to transform your business now in the restaurants. You can't just, you know, have four door, four walls and hope like everybody jams your place forever. It's just not going to happen. So you got to reach out to your, uh, your, you know, like post kitchens or, you know, deliveries. I mean, talk was doing a lot of, uh, they're selling retail stuff online now, you know, and, um, of course, you know, they, the company got sold, but, uh, uh, but still, uh, uh, I rents are coming down. Uh, you just have to find the right opportunity. I think there are a lot of opportunities. If you were a restaurant person and you actually believe that things are going to get back to normal, it's a great time to get in it because, you're going to get the best deals. I encourage people to get back into the business because I hate to see San Francisco particularly lose a lot of good, you know, people in this business. A lot of them are like gone to Florida and Texas. Like, I don't know if those are, you know, maybe they're more open, but I don't know if they're better culinary centers, you know? So Yeah. I mean, they might, they might come back too. Yeah. Once things settle. Um, I'm wondering, it must be really interesting looking at neighborhoods now because you don't have these worker centers, you know, like that Amazon campus would have been a home run two years ago. Right. And now it seems like a dud. And in New York, as I'm thinking about the different neighborhoods here, you know, FIDI, there were a lot of office workers there and will that come back midtown? Will it come back? And so I think it kind of changes the calculus when you're choosing where to set up shop. And so your, your model, we've been revising our business model ever since COVID started. I created a commissary where there was corporate offices so that we can, you know, make our uh, in-house sauces, like our chili bean sauce is a huge seller and people love it. So, you know, we're able to, to kind of, we make everything in house, but, if you're doing it in a kitchen, it's like, you know, just getting in the way. So we did that and we're trying to sell uh, our branded products. You know, we have a whole line now uh, and we have snacks like uh, duck top popcorn and, and broken fortune cookies with chocolate and Asian granola and things like that. So, you know, it's, it's ways to survive and produce and sell outside your box. And if you don't have that model, then you got to go small and neighborhoody. Maybe, you know, uh, there are a lot of places that can, can survive and do good business in their neighborhood, but we're not really a, I hate to say a neighborhood restaurant. So we have to look at different uh, demographics, different economics. Smart. Um, 
Daniel, any any final cues from you? After everything that that's gone on, do you are you still glad to have these kind of mega restaurants uh, where you have uh, you know a, a, a lot of eggs in one's basket, or would it be easier to have smaller operations um, spread throughout the city? It's much easier to manage a, a large sum of revenues under one roof. Uh, like you know, we all know what happened to Italy at the Flatiron, right? I mean, they did huge business. Uh, and I had, you know, a long life noodle company. I had five locations in the Bay Area. And I couldn't get from one to the next store in the same day without, you know, dealing with traffic and loss of time. So my feeling is I'm still going to look at more of a hub and spoke model where Channel Live is in New York. But we'll try and reach out to, to the, you know, the neighbor, uh, to the different neighborhoods and, uh, and even the suburbs a little bit. Through, through geographical distribution. Uh, I don't think I'm ever gonna take down a space this size remotely. The one we're looking at in New York is half the size. Uh, the one in Chicago's uh, half to a third the size. So I, I think you just have to be much more compact because real estate is really gonna play a big concern. I mean, you're not talking about a re-giving you a bunch of money uh, and wanting you to be in Vegas just because they, you know, they they look at it as an amenity for everything else that they're doing. Uh, so yeah, we're looking still to do uh, this concept, but get a lot more efficient. Your first restaurant is never your prototype. And we made a lot of mistakes in China Island in San Francisco. We, we were on multiple floors, which I don't want to do really at most maybe you know, one floor and maybe a part of a second floor or part of a basement. Um, but it's not uh, a multi-story concept. Uh, it's just too hard to uh, to maneuver. So yeah, in a way to answer your question, uh, still bigger, but not that big. And certainly not that many concepts within it. You know, <laughs> will I have another floor just for events? No, it, the real estate is not going to make sense, right? You, so you have to be much more flexible. In cool. Your makes design. sense. Well, George, thank you so much for this all this time. Sorry we kept you a little longer than I had predicted. Um, oh. But this is super fascinating for us. Oh, loquacious one here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. Awesome. Right, Thanks, guys. George. Really appreciate it. Bye. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Amanda, we will be right back after these messages with our weekly dose of stories. Amanda, we're back. We're back from the break. What do you want to get to first? <laughs> I think EMP going going veg. Well, lay it out for me. What, what happened here? Okay, so this week, uh, Daniel Hume, who's the remaining owner of Eleven Madison Park, which is a very high end restaurant in New York, announced that he was turning the restaurant mostly vegan. It's not entirely vegan because I think they serve milk and honey with the coffee service, tea service. Um, mm -hmm. however, mostly vegan when they reopen in June and it got a ton of press, got a ton of press. Yeah. All right. Where do we start? Uh, I first want to say that I think, all right, well, hmm. now let me, let me put this on you. Uh, why did they do this? I mean, I'm a cynic. I think they did it because they need an angle. They need a reason for people to write about them again, uh, in a world where it's hard to know if people's tastes have changed, like who really wants to go sit inside and in some really long ass tasting menu right now. Uh, they want a reason for the gastro tourists to get excited and have uh, something to try once again versus just like, hey, we're reopened. Um, and I think 
he probably thinks it makes him look good. He his announcement post also came with a picture of him wearing a ridiculously expensive outfit and white sneakers crouching in the dirt with like dirt on his hands. I guess like my response. <sighs> Give me your more your less cynical take because I imagine you have one. Well, I mean, number one, my the the number one thing I can say that is less cynical than that is I'm happy about this, right? Like, yeah. I okay. Think yeah. I think that we should be eating less meat as a society. I think like as much as you want to say, as much as you'll see the criticism, oh, this is just like rich man's world, whatever. This doesn't make a difference. It's just for strutting their stuff or whatever. Regardless of that, trends trickle down from these like high castles of culinary innovation, right? Like farm to table movement came from a fancy restaurant. Like if if this is going to lead a few more restaurants to believe that they can they can go vegan or at least not make all their money from animal proteins, then that's like a net good for the world, right? Like the the, sure. the main bad guy here is the factory farms. And I feel mm-hmm. like were they yeah, maybe were, was a restaurant like that using factory farms? Let me say, from my personal experience, even in high and even in ultra high end uh restaurants, maybe the the uh maybe like the the central protein of a plate or whatever will be from whatever farm reputable farm in the neighborhood Mm -hmm. but all the supporting meats are not necessarily going to be from uh they're not there's no reason for them to pay high prices unless they really are devoted to the mission and a lot of these restaurants uh, not all of these restaurants are purely devoted to the mission because it just means higher food costs Mm -hmm. so even in that world I'm glad they're using less meat. I'm glad it may influence people to use less meat and believe they can sell uh, a menu with without meat or much less meat for these high prices and still get buzz for it. So I think I think it's a net good for the world. I mean, you're right. I mean, when you say it like that, it, it's almost like they they're renovating and they're like, "Come see our new restaurant or whatever." Like well, it's like I think it's like a whole specifically new... with this with this restaurant too, because yeah. every couple of years they have a new gimmick. Um, but I will say that in this past year, like we wrote a trend piece about how all these hot vegan restaurants have opened since right. the pandemic started. So there's one in Brooklyn called I'm going to butcher it Zinolin. Zilonen, yeah. Zilonen, uh, Fat Choi on the Lower East Side. Like, there seems to be a growing movement here. So, this is kind of part of that. However, just knowing how they've operated with the media over the last, you know, decade, it, I'm, I have a little cynical take on it. Also, I mean, high end dining rooms have done this before. Most famously, Elaine Passard with L'Arpege did this in 2001, where he went fully meat free and then backtracked a few years later. A lot of other, um, big name chefs have done this and then backtracked. So we'll see how long he does. This yeah. For. Was the claim that they are no longer going to be a restaurant that serves meat or is it that this next round of their menu is vegan? I think his idea was this restaurant no longer serves meat, but then a year from now he can say like, Oh, actually we're like, we're working with these amazing farmers. And so now right. it's all about sustainability. And make, <laughs> right. And they can make a big deal of reintroducing meat. Mm-hmm. We've actually been dry aging this for a year. <laughs> uh, one little side note. If you're going to do it, just say you're vegan, dude. Like how much, how much do you care about the coffee and the, the milk in the coffee? I don't know. 
Like, why is that? Are you going to do you have all these world travelers who are fr- flying in private to hit the world's best restaurant? And they're like, but I won't without my milky coffee. Maybe. I mean, the ethics of milk are just not as I think it's very easy to be cynical about him and this restaurant. They are the masters of the press machine. Mm-hmm. And uh, on the higher end of the cynicism spectrum, you can say that everything they do is for that. But I think I think it, deep in his soul, he still cares about the world of food and he still cares about systems. So I'm excited to see what happens. I wouldn't pretend to know what's deep in his soul. But well, he started in this world for a reason. He wasn't like, I'm going to become a rock star and I don't care about the land. Mm-hmm. I bet he cares about the land. You're right. I don't know what's deep in his soul, but I'm going to assume that there's I, I assume that there's. you know who's mad about this kind of stuff. Who? The the really good farmers and the really good butchers. Like, remember, relatedly, Ep- Epicurious announced a couple weeks ago that they were no longer going to publish new beef recipes. And I had a lot of butchers reach out to me um, saying they were upset by that because it's the wrong message. No beef is the wrong message. It should be good beef. Yeah. The problem is that good beef is the most expensive thing. Like good beef is 10x or whatever what people are paying for mm-hmm. for regular beef. Good beef is a very is is classist, uh, unfortunately. Like it's I I agree with that. Like we should only be eating beef that has been raised by hand and you know where you name the cows and whatever and they sit at your dinner table. I mean I I support those industries. Like I think it's wonderful and um, but it's hard. You know that. The, the economics of it, right? Like the, uh, there is some scalability there. Like mm-hmm. if we only as a society ate that kind of beef, I think you could probably figure out, you know, with regenerative agriculture and all that. But yeah, I, I could see why the, the butchers, the good butchers are, are mad about it. But, but I, uh, I also see why Epicurious would do something like that because to your point, it is kind of classist if you say, okay, yes, here's some beef recipes, but only use this wildly expensive beef that's sustainably raised uh yeah i mean it's a wild move for epicurious but also like epicurious they have so many recipes with beef in it it's not like people are gonna miss out they're just not making new ones so it's 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 (laughs) fine it's not that big of a thing i mean i get it is a big deal it's good for them I, i i applaud it but i don't think it's gonna impact their you know traffic at all or how people actually use the the service. No, and it was funny on their Instagram. They were getting they were getting kind of attacked. People feel unfortunately now beef has become another one of these things that's like don't take away our hamburgers. Yeah, it's become political. Um Amanda, what would you like to announce here and now that we are going to uh abstain from covering <laughs> as your own uh political and, you know, pr- press driving statement. I f- Simone loved that one. She I loved, loved it. She loved it. Um, gosh, I don't know, Daniel. I, I did have a curveball for you, though. Not really related mm-hmm. to this, but I've always been anti us really thinking that much about hard seltzer because, you know, we did that show about White Claw. <laughs> it's like I thought of it as kind of a trashy drink. I had one this weekend and I loved it. Well, that's ridiculous also. I mean, both both things are ridiculous. Mm-hmm. We loved a hard seltzer. I loved I mean, it. Now, now all about it. Wall to wall, wall to wall, hard seltzer coverage. Get ready. It is an interesting question. And I know you hate when we get sort of inside baseball, but 
everyone wants to talk about hard seltzer. It's kind of not really like eater domain, but we do talk about it a lot. I mean, I'm a, I'm a obsessed with it. Um, I just think it's the most practical thing to drink from a health perspective. It's low-cal. <laughs> it's basically vodka soda, but made fun, mm-hmm, you know, and mm-hmm. to go in the way that... like. Also, I mean, not that this would ever happen, but you can show up to a party with a case of White Claw and uh, and no one would ever be like, nice case, wimp. Right. Like it, it, 10 years ago, that might have been the case. Right. If you came with like a Perrier and a mm-hmm. vodka. Well, I still rock that hard, but I don't know. Not everyone has the confidence that I do. So I don't know what what was so good about the hard seltzer that you that you drank. Like why? It, it didn't taste like chemicals. I think when we had we had a taste test. What was it? 2019 in the summer. Mm. And now, one and a half years later, I think there's been a lot of momentum in this field. And I'm yeah. I'm really impressed by it, and I'm I'm changed. This has nothing to do with the beef conversation, but I'm I think this is our way out. Well, d- but don't don't let the audience in behind the curtain. Obviously, we're we're transitioning out. Um, <laughs> I think. Uh, well, look, the more I mean, it's a very simple thing, right? Like the better the quality of bubbles, the better the juice, the better the alcohol. It's like you're gonna get a, a good you're gonna get a good a good drink. Like Spindrift, which is the uh, kind of newer age LaCroix that has 2% juice in it or whatever just announced that they're going to do hard seltzer and the world was set ablaze by this announcement because everyone loves Spindrifts. It's a Damn. little more high class. I would totally, yeah. I would totally rock right. one of those. Yeah. Right. It's these are these, these stories are interesting, but they're just to me because I, I see the matrix in the drinking health world. It's just obviously that these, these things are coming. Right. I don't know why I'm feeling co- I'm not cocky. Today. I'm, I'm cocky. We're talking about things. <laughs> I think I just drank coffee probably too close to the show. Here's one thing I will say is mm-hmm. I, I don't think. Ways in which the health world and the fun world are kind of coagulating or, or, or coming together to influence the drinking world is not a, is not a flash in the pan story, right? So like every I think every year there'll be some new version of White Claw Summer, and I don't think I don't think we're gonna have like I don't think craft beer and big beer are ever gonna overtake seltzers in terms of what's buzzier in a summer. Right, 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 right. Um, Amanda, do you want to give us some more serious? Will you Will you give us the update on the? Uh, on the SBA funds? Sure. So um, as we talked about on this show, the government passed a revitalization fund for restaurants with $28.6 billion for independent restaurant tours to not, I mean, you could be a chain too, if you have un, fewer than 20 locations, but for restaurant tours to basically claim their 2020 losses, you can claim your full losses up to $10 million, which is a game changer for so many yeah. small business owners. Uh, and Senator Chuck Schumer has said the fund will be replenished if it runs out. So no need to worry there. Fingers crossed that he's right. Uh, Still a time-related worry, though. Like, who knows Yeah, how- you want to get the money as soon as possible. Um, they prioritized women and people from disadvantaged backgrounds and veterans first for the first few weeks. So that's a good thing to know. And it opened this past Monday and they've received almost 200,000 applicants so far. I hope it goes smoothly. The early reports, the early reports are that things are are running smoothly. Uh, you know, it's government institutions handing out money. It never goes perfectly, but I just hope, I hope it's easy and I hope the barriers to entry aren't too high. Well, I think they had a nice dry run with the music venues where they already had a similar program set up and they went through it and there were a lot of glitches. I was reading about that they just had a lot of trouble there and I think hopefully they worked out all the kinks for the restaurant tours. Yeah. 
Um, up next, Amanda, I know this is an issue that is near and dear uh, to your heart. I There was a press release in Food & Wine, I think, for a new cookbook uh, created for those who lost their taste during COVID uh, ah. long haulers. Hmm. You know. Huh. Huh. Yeah. Uh, Ryan Riley and Kim Duke's Taste and Flavor, um, 300 new recipes uh, meant to emphasize texture as much as possible while ramping up umami. Um, and they also avoid foods like garlic and onions and chocolate, which supposedly suddenly taste terrible to those missing a normal sense of smell. Um, pretty, pretty wild that, 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 that this would come out. I mean, uh, you know, pretty fairly limited shelf life on this i'd be curious like i just don't <laughs> seems like a very niche group yeah like is this a yeah i mean i i think i i, res- I respect it you know i'm all for it I, I i guess you would know better than i do what when you were reporting this out a little bit the loss of taste like what percentage of people are we talking about here is there do you think like half a million oh, people in america lost their taste what do we i think i mean the majority of people who got covid lost their sense of taste but not long haul right you know right so i don't know how many long covid people there are out there who still have um screwed up taste buds and i'm sure there's a lot of people are they all gonna want this cookbook i don't know and then afterwards like let's say everything clears up within a year then what's yeah what is the shelf life of this kind of book beyond people who are permanently have permanent damage should we talk about the ketchup packet shortage that's crazy to me tell me more about this um okay here's the story there's a ketchup pack shortage they're just uh yeah there was because so many restaurants have gone from dine-in to takeout uh there's been just so such the the desire the the demand for ketchup to go has has just gone through the roof so a, a lot of the major ketchup companies are are reeling to uh to get their ketchup packet production uh, high enough to meet meet the demand. It's kind of like um, at the beginning of the pandemic when there were all those flour shortages. It wasn't because there wasn't enough flour. It's that there weren't enough of those small bags mm-hmm. to put the flour in because all those companies were used to selling to wholesale and not to grocers. And there's just like, you know, a supply chain issue. So maybe same thing. Not enough of those little, little packets. That's the issue, right? There's, there's no mm-hmm. shortage of ketchup. Um, if only. I mean, not if only. I mean, I just... there's. <laughs> if only? What do you have against ketchup? <laughs> I mean, I love ketchup, but it's just too perfect, right? It's just... It's mm, every flavor mm-hmm. center in a sauce. It's it, it just it's just an auto win, right? And I don't I, I think it's kind of cheating, in a sense. I don't know. But they invented it. The, I don't know. I don't, I don't like things like that. I don't like things like ketchup. <laughs> and it's just... Every, I, I don't think also people realize how sugary it is, right? I think people are like... That's what I thought your main complaint. I thought it was going to be like this Daniel sugar tirade. But I I think this is more interesting. (sighs) That it's just too... It's too good. It's too perfect. It's too easy. Make it harder. (laughs) To wrap up, I think, you know, you're seeing more and more articles saying that vaccinations are slowing, uh... There's been a whole whack of ways that cities, provinces, not provinces, sorry, uh, states 
are incentivizing people to get the vax. Uh, do you want to talk about some that you've seen around? So the Hustler the Club system? in New Orleans, Larry Flynn's Hustler Club, is offering is going to offer free vaccines on the street at his Bourbon Street location. And if you get a vaccine, you also get a free shot. Shot for shot event. Okay. Uh, in New Jersey, the governor, Phil Murphy, said state residents who get their first COVID vaccine will be eligible for a free beer at select breweries. How far is this going to... Are there going to be free lap dances somewhere? I mean, Hustler Club, shot for shot, we're already getting there. We're getting there, close, so right? I feel like, yes, absolutely. I mean, the the next phase from... The Biden administration is to go out to where the people are. So they're moving away from the mass vaccination sites because, you know, demand is lessening and now they're going to go everywhere. So, yeah, maybe you'll go to your bar and they'll have shots if you want it. Maybe you'll go to your strip club and they'll have some shots. Who knows? I don't know. Have you been listening to these as a side note? Have you been hearing these these ads that they're doing on like terrestrial radio? I was just in the barbershop the other day and it was just like. It sounded like some janky car commercial being like, like, we're all in this together. Like, you can really help out your friends and your loved ones by getting the COVID-19 shot. Get the vax. Get the vax. I, I, uh, I think that they should. I mean, I don't know. I, they got, I feel like they got to try some weird reverse psychology things. Like, honestly, if they got like AOC to go out and be like, the vax is for losers. I think that would get a lot of people to go get it. I don't I don't think these donuts are really going to move the needle. Um, anyway, Amanda, uh, what a lovely week. Um, it's gorgeous outside. Let's go dine. What am I talking about? Um, it is gorgeous outside. Uh, great to see you. Um, give my best to Simone. It's been lovely <laughs> podcasting with the two of you. Yes, we're really having fun uh, working from home. Do you want to bring her uh, over to the thanks. mic and see if she's got any thoughts about food? No, I think I'm going to leave her where she is, struggling with the iPad. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Daniel. Thank you to George Chen. And we will see you all in a couple weeks. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.